Welcome to episode 121, Becoming Even Better, The Important Impact of Clinical Niche on Therapeutic Outcomes, featuring Miranda Palmer, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. My name is Beth Irias, and I am delighted today to be joined by Miranda Palmer. Miranda is joining us from San Diego, California. She's a licensed marriage and family therapist, and she has spent a good part of her career now training uh, private practitioners in how to be effective and successful in private practice. Uh, she's also the co-founder of Zinni Me, and that's part of how she does her work. Miranda, thank you for joining us today and talking on this topic of um, really focusing as therapists about what we do, how we do it, and how we integrate it into our work and how it affect our, affects our outcomes. Thank you for joining me. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. I, I am always struck by how powerful the work we do as therapists is. And also I'm struck by how often we as therapists minimize it and we um, don't even notice um, the great things that we're doing. And so anytime um, I can help people lean in and notice and really have this increased awareness of what their outcomes are and all the great work that they are doing, and then also find those where places and spaces where they can just kind of like tweak it and up level it and get better over time. Um, because, you know, what we do as helpers is magical. Like it changes not only like the person that we're sit that's sitting in front of us, but it has these like ripple effects to so many other people. Kelly likes to talk about how like uh, Kelly Higdon, this is my, my business partner. She talks about how like we're impacting family trees for generations to come, right? It's so impactful. Yeah, absolutely. So Miranda, why don't you tell us a little bit more about your work and then how you came to do what you do uh, in the way that you do it. You would do consulting, you do training, you've done supervision before. How did all this lead to you being here? Yeah. So there is this path that we follow, right, of going and getting trained and, and going to graduate school. And we learn all of these things in graduate school. Um, and about how to be effective. And we uh, read these books and we watch these videos of the masters and everybody in graduate school says, um, okay, you're going to find your specialization. You're going to find your theoretical orientation and you're going to figure out who you are as a therapist. You're going to lean into that. And if somebody comes to you to like do work with you and it's not a good fit, you're going to refer them out. You're going to, you're going to know what your scope of, you know, competence is, you know, like what your scope of practice is. And yes, you're going to have this general knowledge that's very broad, but there's going to be an area where you're going to like find your, your place and your space or your, your niche for, uh, for lack of a better term. And then we go out into the world into our practicums or our placements and our internships. And we get this messaging that is like completely opposite to that, where suddenly it's, there's no one to refer them to. You're the only person. If it's not you, then it's nobody. Yes, that's clinical best practices that you would see them at this frequency, but this is all we have. So do your best in once a month or do your best in 20 minutes do your, do your best, even though, you know, read this book about OCD with this client and, um, you know, and then come to supervision and me as a generalist, I will help you muddle through <laughs> this experience, um, with, with these clients. And <clears throat> it's the, it's been this like internal struggle from the beginning for me in terms of, of experiencing that. And being in that space where it kind of sets us up for this like huge imposter syndrome as therapists. And it's this like space of, of like brokenness in like the system of how we train therapists of here is like what you're being taught. And then you're immediately taught to discount it. You're immediately taught to discount your intuition, right? One of the best experiences that I had was when I got into positions, and especially when I moved into private practice, 
where I started to be able to lean back into what I learned in graduate school and to focus in and go, oh, this is actually like who I do really good work with. And wow, this is what it looks like to get really great outcomes with people. And this is what it feels like on the phone when somebody's not a good fit. This is what it feels like in person when like I'm not making clinical progress. And here's the point of no return when I need to refer someone out. Or this is what it feels like right in the beginning where I need to like call it out in the moment where you start to learn these skills and you have permission finally to like kind of be that, I don't know, to be in an integrity, right? Ultimately, that I got to be in integrity again. And so when I had that experience and then I was able to kind of go back in and, you know, teaching at the graduate level and then also working as a clinical supervisor, I always wanted to really help people to see that they could trust that intuition, that it was all about like, how do we really engage with the client in the real world and also really help develop therapist's ability to like set some clinical boundaries with their clients, but also with clinical supervisors, also with agency, you know, uh, supervisors that we need to know where are we stretching, right? And where are we breaking? Where are we being broken? There is a lot of, um, of, of therapists right now that are being broken, that are burnt out, that are stretched beyond repair. And it's not just this all happened because we happen to be recording this in the midst, you know, in the early part of 2021 and, and we're in a pandemic. Therapists were burnt out well before the pandemic started. And this is just another stretch. You know, Kelly um, and I co-wrote a book about burnout in therapists now, like two years ago almost. And like now they're talking about it um, as like a, a current issue that's, you know, COVID related as a next wave, but it's it's not a new wave. It's just an exacerbation of what's there. <sighs> Anyways, I just love, <laughs> I just want to say, I know I get like chatty, but I just love this topic. I, th- I just think it's, it's so powerful. And when therapists are, are real, are empowered to get back into what they do. And when they are educated in how to figure out what's working and what's not, it has such a beautiful impact on the clinical relationship and the client's outcomes. And also the, like the internal experience of the therapist, like it's so reinforced invigorating to do the work when you can see, wow, what I'm doing is having a real impact. And it's not just that I'm telling myself, well, you're doing your best. You're doing your best. You're doing your best. Well, it's probably the client's not doing the work. The client's not doing the work. And then, but you still somewhere deep inside go like, this isn't why I signed up for this. I I know as you're talking about that, I that experience, I had exactly the same experience of being in my practicum while I was in school and you take whoever's assigned to you. And then my first internship working with populations that I, you know, obviously had never worked with before and had a little exposure and and one hour or two hours of supervision weekly was I was woefully unprepared. And and that's actually part of why I do this podcast. That's part of why we do Clearly Clinical is like, how do we help people um, understand all these concepts when we are thrown in the thick of it? And my training at this large rehab facility for for adolescents was that they handed me my keys and said, there's your office. And that was that. Um, But so I can I can relate with that. And now being in private practice many years later and having that experience I know for many of us, when we are either in school or we first leave school and we're in an associateship or internship, we try to cast a wide net and we try to to learn about ourselves and learn what we're good at, learn what we're interested in, and also serve as many people as possible, particularly if we're in private practice. And then there's this whole concept of finding your niche and they're like contradictory. (laughs) So then what do we do? And I think the piece that you bring to this that's so interesting is when we view this through the lens of outcomes and effectiveness, there is a lot of validity to this idea of niching. Um, so, So let's start there. How do you define a niche as someone that trains people on this? What does it mean to you to have a niche? I think it, what it means 
and the core is that there is a particular clinical population presentation or even a particular way of working that you have found that you get great outcomes and you kind of know where that space is. And people often have more than one little like base or place, yeah, right? Pocket. pocket, right? Pocket of, of greatness where like, okay, wow, I work really well if these things are present, right? Like I work really well if I can do EMDR with someone who's open to doing like some work on their old trauma, right? Like that feels really good. Okay, I also do really great work with people who like have a sense of humor and who want to be like kind of challenged, but they're willing to do like homework and do more like CBT oriented stuff. Like again, it might be different for everybody into where those little pockets are. But also part of I think even more important for, for some of you listening in terms of developing your niche is knowing this is outside of it. Like if you're not sure what your niche is, if you're not sure what your specialization is, like right in this moment, at the very least, you should be able to write a pretty significant list of where your greatness isn't and where you've really struggled to get great outcomes. So like for me, I always brought up the idea of like, somebody who like a couple or um, a male that had narcissistic traits for whatever reason that individual does not like me like not even a little bit they don't vibe with me there's just a thing that happens so quickly and so i wanted to make sure that i had somebody from the very beginning where i knew where to refer that person out right i also knew that like while I'm great at working with domestic violence and people in active, like dangerous situations, working in private practice, I didn't want to, you know, I'm a female working alone in an office. That didn't feel safe to me to have people who were in active danger. So I was not going to specifically seek that out. And if somebody was in that space, I'm going to refer them out to an agency where I felt like they had the room to have a security officer come by and have people to do checks and balances. So I think even that initial place, right? If, again, I know your question was like, how do you define a niche, right? The niche is that place where you can be clinically effective in your current, right? In your current placement, whatever that is. So your niche could even change depending on where you're working and what is even happening in your life. So sometimes somebody could say, well, I have this niche of working with kids. I have all this expertise. I've had these great clinical outcomes. It's fantastic. But you know what? Like right now in my life, I'm exhausted. And the idea of like seeing kids when I'm working with kids all day at home or my kid is this age or going through the struggle, the idea of doing that just makes me feel queasy that would tell you that you're outside of your like sphere of probably where you need to be clinically. And I think as therapists, we often are like, well, I just need to do therapy because it just means that like something's broken about me. And if I can just get through my internal blockages, then that's going to come back. Well, yes. And maybe you can still say no. (laughs) Maybe you can still say not right now. Um, maybe it's still okay to refer those people out. And when you look at the stories, the books from the experts and the greats and the people that we like, oh God, Irvin Yalom or, oh, this person or that person, you don't hear them saying like, well, you know, I took on this client who I just felt kind of sick about the first time I talked to them on the phone, but you know, I really needed to pay the bills. So I said yes, because I felt uncomfortable saying no. And then, wow, we had this great outcome. That's not a story you hear a lot, right? Like, and yet we somehow think that when we say yes to these clients, because, you know, I don't have a better referral for them. And, you know, I, I do need clients right now. And something's better than nothing. And I, and I bet I can do some good work with them. I mean, I, I have some training there, even though like my intuition is screaming at me and saying no. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I'll i just work a little harder. I'll read some extra books, yeah. you know. 
And, and I think one of the, the, I heard this phrase just yesterday, oddly enough, um, that wasn't related to this at all, but talking about bringing on a new client, maybe it might be a stretch, but it shouldn't be a stress, right? So like that, that difference, maybe there's a stretch, maybe there is a place where you said, you know, here's an area that like, I'm really excited about. And I'd really like to expand my expertise in this particular area. So I am going to start taking on clients in this area and I'm going to go and get training and supervision. I'm going to go through this, this piece. I think that's okay, but you can't do that with every person who calls. If you've got 20 clients in your office and 15 of them are places where you're stretching and 15 different directions, if you're making these like little movements in every different direction, you're not going to make real progress and you're not going to be able to track whether you're actually making good outcomes with these people. And most of the time, right, you're probably not if you're that far out of your scope in all these different directions. Again, we're generalists just so that we can know when to refer people out and so we understand the pieces, but that doesn't mean every client should be in a thousand different directions. Yeah. I, and I can imagine for our listeners too, there's some people going, well, I have no control over who's assigned to me, or, you know, I work at this facility and we always see these kind of clients that sometimes have comorbid substance use disorders or eating disorders or whatever it is. And I think coming from both Miranda and I, we see you. And we know that you are in such a, such a hard spot. And that's why you have supervision. That's why you have many of the resources that are available to you through through things like Miranda's uh, work and, and through Clearly Clinical and things like that. And the, who we're really talking to is the person now that's working on figuring out who am I when I'm not being funneled a client that I quote unquote have to see and my phone is ringing as a private practitioner or in a group practice or whatever it is and I need to decide what I'm going to do. Um, I think that's a whole different kind of pressure because I know for me, if you had said to me in in my master's program, you are going to work with adolescents for many years and also gang, those are going to be gang affiliated youth with really severe addictive disorders. I would have been like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> That's where there was an internship. And so that's yeah. what I did. Um, but then when I was done with the internship and my career kept progressing, it was like, well, what do I actually want to do? And what parts of this really jive with me and watching my career shift and change and how we acquire new specializations as time passes. I think it's really interesting. But if you're just at the start of that journey, it can be really overwhelming. And I know one thing I've seen, and I'm sure Miranda, you've seen the same, is like you'll be on social media where we, you know, sometimes as practitioners connect to find referrals. Um, and, you know, we know somebody that is like, for me, eating disorder, totally out of my scope, <laughs> out of my yeah. scope, um, that when I will refer out. And so one thing I've seen is so I go online and I say seeking a provider in network with Anthem or whoever it is um, that has a specialization with eating disorders. And then somebody, person A says, yes, me. But then I see that person A has responded to five other posts that same day with all different clients. And it's like, well, are you actually specialized with eating disorders? Like, who are you clinically? What's your identity? And this this pressure to simultaneously be generalists, to be renaissance people, if you will, to be good at all things, jack of all trades, but then also simultaneously to really identify yourself and stand out from the pack and say, this is who I, who I am and this is who I, who I treat. It's really complicated. It is really complicated. And at the same time, I think it's not, right? So I, I want to go back for a second to those to those of you who are like still in agency or hospital placements or a place where somebody else is is pushing that that towards you. First and foremost, I want to give you guys just a couple of things that you can do right here right now today. One is start making a list of like what you're really good at and where you feel like you are getting your footing and then make a list of the places where like it doesn't feel quite right things where like, oh, I really hate working with this individual, whatever it is, or I really just dislike that. And these can be, again, it can be a place for you to lean in to where you have a little bit of greatness already. Sometimes it can be a place for you to say, oh, you know what? I like, for example, I worked at a psychiatric hospital 
everybody does everything. It's just like, here's your clients. But people knew that I had worked with sexual assault and domestic violence, and they understood that that was part of my my specialization, that I come into this place even as an intern. And so those got funneled to me for me to do the safety planning, for me to like work with the families. So even inside of that place, maybe the the powers that be are are saying, you guys just take care of it. But as colleagues, right? I know you guys feel like students or interns or, you know, the the employees and you don't always feel like you have a lot of control. Don't be afraid to ask for what you need. Don't be afraid to like, I had a clinical supervisor at that psychiatric hospital. Very nice man. Brilliant. He literally like, we have one two hour supervision. He would turn on a tape of a lecture in supervision. We're all exhausted, like people in the psychiatric suicidal you know, suicidal, homicidal people. And he's like, here's this thing, this dry psychiatrist. We're like, what is going on? We had to say like, no, we need to actually like present our cases. Like we have active, very intense cases that we need to present and we need to talk through that we don't get a chance anywhere else. We need your expertise, you know? So don't be afraid to ask and verbalize for what you want and make sure that you're getting the amount of supervision that's actually like required or recommended by your licensure or designation, because I see that a lot as well, a, a lot too, people not doing that. So that said, right, going back to this place of you're new in private practice, or you're struggling in private practice, and you're trying to connect. Ultimately, I know that everybody that's in private practice wants to be impactful, right? You don't want to, you, you want to be able to pay your bills, but you chose therapy or counseling or whatever your specialization is because you really wanted to help people. Like that is like, that is the piece. And anytime you are outside of that integrity where you don't feel like what you're doing is making an impact, you're not going to feel good about yourself as a business owner. It's going to wear on you. It's going to exhaust you. When you're not sure about whether you can do good work with this person, you're going to start doing weird things about your fee that are going to put you into ethical quagmires and into financial ruin. You're going to start to do all these weird things to try to like make up for the fact that you don't know whether you can actually do this work. Again, you want to stretch in a particular area stretch in a particular area, but you shouldn't be stretching in 10 areas at once when you're new in private practice. Like figure out where you want to be because like you are not doing what you think you're doing in terms of building your practice. You are not building a good reputation, right? You want to build a good reputation where people go, this person, I know her, she's about this. Absolutely. I, you know, you listeners can't see me, but I'm sitting here nodding as Miranda's talking. And I, I've had the opportunity over the years to get to know Dr. Scott Miller and Dr. Daryl Chow. And so here are two people that have been so impactful with feedback informed treatment and this application of deliberate practice to psychotherapy. I'm a feedback informed treatment trainer. And everything that Miranda is saying, it's so in line with this idea of like, we need to know what we're good at, what we're not. And I think your point very early on about the difference between kind of bending and breaking, that those are two very different ideas and allowing therapists the the space and the encouragement to do that because i know it it, it feels bad once it can feel bad if somebody calls and it's like yeah no i would really love to help you and i know that you're really hoping that i'm the right person and i'm going to give you another number here's who i think you should call and then we have to contend with all of our own feelings of helplessness and should i learn about this and and when do i lean in and and you know here's one of the other things that fascinates everybody in any first job ever where it's like well what experience do you have doing this well i don't but i want to well, come back to us when you have experience doing it. It's like, but I can't get it unless you give me the opportunity to get the experience. So it's like, how do people start working with eating disorders? How do people start working with um, with LGBTQIA? How do people start working with couples that are um, considering divorce? It's like, well, we have to start somewhere and giving ourselves permission to like be okay with leaning back from other stuff so that we can lean in and be very deliberate. 
Yeah, I think that deliberate practice, right? This is something like I love. I'm going to like horribly quote Scott Miller. And because you're a trainer, you'll be able to correct it. Um, <laughs> but, you know, there's a couple of areas in that research um, where he talks about like that it's about focusing in, like getting feedback from the from the client, integrating it, and then making focus practice in a particular area that's just out of reach. Like this is what people do who are experts. They don't go out and say, you know what? I'd like to be an NBA player. So I'm going to go and check. I'm going to go try out for the Knicks. You don't do that. You just try, like you get a little bit better at shooting and a little bit better at dribbling and then a little bit, you know, like you're focusing on particular areas. If you are a, um, a musician, right? You don't go and try unless you're some kind of savant and it's okay not to be a savant. Like we all have to like work in those areas. So as you move into practice, I, this is one of the best reasons to really, if you like to have this one specialty, right? If you have a particular wheelhouse you've been doing for a while and you're like, I'm really good at it. I don't want to do it forever, but like, I feel really good and confident and confident about it. Um, then I can do that. And you could also say, and I want to stretch in this other area and this is where I'm going to be working for the next year. That's okay. And that's a good thing, right? But you can't just take everybody on and think that your magic can get going to get better. Cause again, going back to Scott Miller's research, years of experience, hours of therapy, like the age of the therapist, you know, none of these things particularly correlate with great clinical outcomes. You have to ask and have these conversations. And this is something like, and, and this is like this magical thing, right? Kelly and I teach this class, uh, the CE class where we teach people because as good as Scott Miller's stuff is with the paper and pencil, people don't really always know what to do with the numbers. And like, they don't want to do the graphs or, or get the, the, the whatever. And so we say like, look, if you don't want to do the whole thing, I get it. But like, just have a conversation. And we give them a whole script of like, ask clients these questions, right? Just ask them these questions and just listen to the answers and let it spark some growth between you and, and the conversation. And therapists again and again, come back and go, oh my gosh, I'm in tears. Wow. Not only are they learning about, I didn't even, I didn't know who I was clinically before I asked the client and I'm getting more clarity of who I am. I'm getting more clarity about what's working that I didn't even realize was working, but also, wow, there was something magical that happened for the client in verbalizing the outcome of them verbalizing their progress I could see that until this moment, until they actually looked back at where they were when they got there and where they are now, they hadn't fully realized all the progress they'd made. So now the client is actually having this experience of like owning the full progress and like the pride of like, wow, I've come so far. And because it's these little micro moments and micro changes, right? They they hadn't even fully like, conceptualize the progress they'd made in therapy. So now you have this one conversational clients that makes you feel like a million bucks, gives you very clear spaces of like, ooh, here's some areas where I can change and I can show up better for my clients. Wow, this is where I'm doing good works with these clients and I understand what they were looking for and how I can maybe even be really clear about that and track more people like that. Um, and this client actually feels better about therapy because I just asked them about it. <laughs> like I actually improved my outcome just by asking about it. Just which again aligns with Scott Miller's research of just asking the question changes the outcome. Absolutely. So for those of you, you know, Miranda and I could nerd out on this topic, I think, for a long time. But so we're talking about feedback informed treatment and deliberate practice, which is this concept in any field of working at the edge. So instead of us avoiding what we're bad, you know, quote unquote bad at, avoid avoiding those areas needing improvement, we actually lean into them. And that this is really when we've done research about musicians, athletes, all, all different kinds of specializations, the people that become really incredible at what they do, it's because they work at the edge. They are continually trying to grow in a very specific area. And so they're not trying to play all of the instruments. 
they're trying to get very good at that particular kind of Spanish guitar. And then they know where they need to work it. They seek guidance and coaching around this one issue with chords, and then they keep working it and working it. And that that same research has been applied to therapists. So Scott Miller and Dr. Barry Duncan came up with feedback informed treatment and this idea of the outcome rating scale and the session rating scale. And for those of you who are interested, I've emailed uh, or excuse me, I've interviewed Scott Miller and then also interviewed Scott Miller and Daryl Chow on these topics, their existing podcasts, but how we improve outcomes. And where Miranda fits into this is the application of this research to this idea of a niche, to this idea of, of self-identifying as clinicians and saying, you know, this is me and this is my jam and I'm going to nail it. That's what we're talking about. So it's taking that research and applying it to yourself and going, where am I really good? Like, you know, giving, giving myself permission to be deliberate and be like, not so good over there, but really excellent over here. Mm-hmm. Um, so so to, to build out that idea. Miranda, tell me when you look at the research and the um, application of feedback and feedback informed treatment to outcomes and this idea of um, really honing one's craft therapeutically. So knowing that you work really well with people who are in the early stages of um, of severe substance recovery, mm-hmm. for example, what are the benefits of doing that and really being very um, topic uh, or method driven? It is so incredibly powerful. Right. So I always like to go back to the idea of as as therapists and as business owners, if you own your own business, we only have so much resource. Right. We only have so much time. We only have so much energy. We only have so much money. And you are making decisions about how you spend your time, energy and money, what kind of consultation you get, um, who, who you choose for your consultation what books you read, what trainings you go after, um, and ultimately what clients you allow on your on, on your caseload. Because as you progress in your profession, you should you you will have a waiting list. If you know how to run a business and you learn how to market your practice, it is almost impossible right now if you have set up the foundation of your business not to be overwrought with clients. Like there's just if, if you have your stuff figured out and you've put the pieces in place, there is more need out there than any of us could ever possibly meet all of us together. This idea that like there's not enough clients out there and that there's too many therapists. I don't believe it. I just don't believe it. Right. So we only have so much resource. So when we get really clear, we, it lets us know where to say yes and where to say no. And it, helps us take, if I read one book that applies to half of my caseload, then I've now, and I, you know, and I implement one strategy that works in this particular area, I've now impacted half of my caseload, or if it's three quarters of my caseload, wow, I am now making progress and improving that maybe with three quarters of my caseload. If I'm working with a particular consultant who, again, helped improve my skills in this area that applies to most of my caseload, then I can, again, practice this particular skill across multiple presentations of this particular issue. And again, really find out what's working and figure out the nuance of it and get it fully implemented. So a a small thing like a few hours to read a book or one thing of consultation, when it impacts and is somehow like and I can't think of the word right now, but like when I can like generalize it out to most of my caseload, because there's some commonalities in my caseload, it means that that time, money and and energy that I put into that hour or two or three has a greater return on investment, right? I think the other thing that's so, so important is that ultimately we want that we know therapy works right? Like we know therapy is like so impactful. It really works. We also know that people struggle to find therapists and that they often struggle to find therapists that are a good fit for them. And we want to make it as easy for the consumer to find a therapist as possible. When we are not clear 
about where we do good work, if we're not clear about who we should refer out, if we're not clear about what we do, it's not just that, oh, you know, this is going to impact this, this particular session or this particular client. It, it really has this huge thing of it makes it harder for the consumer to find therapy. And when somebody has gone to therapy and they've had a bad experience, right? Somebody said, oh, I can help you. And then they didn't, right? And maybe even they said, I could help you. And then they weren't. And they didn't call it out and say, I see I'm not helping you. I want to refer you out. And I found somebody for you, right? Like when somebody would call me on the phone, I, I made a promise to everybody, which they say, right? Therapists, you can't make promises. Here's the promise that I made to everybody who called me. I can't promise that what I do will help you. But what I can promise is that if what we're doing is not working and it's not helping you, we're going to change it up until it does, or I'm going to refer you out and we're going to find you somebody else because we're not doing this. You're not going to be in therapy forever and you're not going to be in therapy with me forever if it's not working and getting you towards your particular goals right? And I think that's an important thing because when somebody, again, they've paid their money, they came in, they spent an hour or hours or weeks or years with you and they haven't gotten the outcome, how much harder is it to then go and do that again, right? It's like relationships or dating. When you've had this bad relationship, it's so hard. I'm glad you bring up that piece of it because that I think it's I think it's easy for us to lose sight of that where it's like well I'll just give it a try but when we zoom out and look at it through an ethical lens according to the research when people have negative outcomes in therapy they're much less likely to try therapy again and the other kind of creepy thing <laughs> and motivating depending how you look at it we only according to the research we only have a couple of sessions to help the client be experiencing a positive outcome. And that means we need to be very skilled from the onset with a particular topic. Um, I, I'm, I, I could just keep nerding out on this, Miranda. Like we're we're, we're a, in the pocket right now. <laughs> it's such a great nerdy conversation. And this is something too, right? That I, I talk with therapists about all the time of like, if somebody doesn't see change in those first three, first few sessions, like you've lost them. Like they need to have an impact and it doesn't. And they're like, well, I mean, I just like to spend the, like a doing assessment. No, I'm sorry. You, you can do some assessment, but if they don't have something tangible, they don't have a tangible shift in each session. And it doesn't have to be big. You don't have to do like magical, huge, big things. You could literally teach them some meditation or some deep breathing give them a book to read. Like it can be a small little shift that's based on what you're hearing thus far. And that's all it takes for them to be like in on the process with you. But if they don't have that, right, then they're going to go away. Yeah, they're going to drop out. And you, one of your specializations then is that piece of how do private practitioners or group therapy practice owners um, develop a healthy business model. And I think that that has to be part of the conversation is that if we're working with clients that aren't a good fit and we miss the mark in those first few sh- sessions, not only have we now impacted that person's likelihood of pursuing therapy and receiving relief in the future with anybody else, mm-hmm. that's no point now, um, but we also have now created an environment where there is a lot of dropping out versus the likelihood of us finding that goodness of fit and having the, the the right vibe between therapist and client and how much more likely then that is for the person to stay in treatment. Well, there's something really powerful, right? So if you find, right, by tracking your outcomes that a, to have a good outcome with clients, they stay with you on average, let's say 26 weeks, right? 26 weeks. And you see... 15 clients a week for you to be in your brilliance for the first person that you see in the first day of the week and the last person that you are like on it, you can return all their phone calls, your progress notes are up to date, like everything is magic, whatever that is, then you need to attract about 30 clients a year to be, to be full. Right. Right. So like, if you, if you think about it that, right, Mm -hmm. like 15, 15, 30 clients a year, if 
you have people coming in who really need to see you for about 26 weeks, but your average, because you're not getting great outcomes, is about six, right? Then now suddenly we have to get four times as many people attracted into your practice. You have to go and connect it with 130 people. And again, we know that like, oh, wait, most of those people not getting a great outcome. So are they telling their friends? No. Are this their psychiatrist going, wow, that you got such a great outcome. Who's your therapist again? Let me call. I think I'm going to refer. Wow. I can see that this person, every time that these people tend to like their, their meds, they're stabilized over time or their meds are actually able to go down. So it changes the dynamic in terms of the health of your business and how hard you have to work to fill your business because if you're not getting great outcomes, people aren't going to refer to you as much. You're going to have, you're going to be like assessing people constantly. And it's a lot more energy to start a new therapy relationship than it is to just do good work and do the full treatment, right? It, and it's frustrating clinically. It's frustrating personally. It feels bad. It triggers our feelings of inadequacy to constantly have people dropping out of therapy. When somebody leaves therapy, it should actually be like, it can be a brilliant, beautiful things thing. One of my favorite stories to tell is um, I was using Scott Miller's, I think it's his, it was one of the early softwares, so, ugh, early pieces of software um, for the feedback informed treatment. And the client filled out the information at the end of the session, I had been a little sporadic. It's like kind of a thing to like get into the routine of having people fill out the software. And she filled it out and it wasn't like terrible numbers, but it literally said like, and it popped on the screen and said, oh, based on this um, and where you're at in treatment, um, it sounds like you're thinking about um, discontinuing therapy or moving therapists. And the client looked at me like stunned and said, I have an appointment with another therapist this week to see if it would be a better fit, right? And it was this beautiful conversation. And I knew what we were working on and why. And I knew where the conflict was, right? In terms of what the clients was was wanting and also the clinical presentation and what was needed and what was safe. And so it that actually doing the feedback informed treatment and even getting that kind of like we could see it as a negative conversation. It wasn't. It became this beautiful conversation. It was a beautiful termination conversation. They went to this other therapist and then a year or two later sent me a message and said, oh, my goodness, like I can fully see now like we did really great work and I finally understand what you were doing and why you wouldn't go the place that I wanted you to go. And I just want to say I'm doing really well. And I just so appreciate you and the work that we did together, right? That is a good outcome. Like, even if you have this conversation, therapists get really scared. Um, even if you have this conversation and it doesn't go well, it could still go well. Having these conversations is powerful. And I also even want to challenge the idea too that like, well, I don't know if the client's getting good outcomes, but they keep coming back. Know that sometimes that can be that can be a symptom for your client that they don't set boundaries with people and that they stay stuck in relationships that aren't working for them. So for them to even find their voice and to ask for what they need could be something that is needed clinically. So you get to like, we're one of the few people or we should be one of the people where a client can say, I don't like this or this feels uncomfortable and we're going to hold it and we're not going to get defensive and we're not going to attack them. And we're still going to, I'm not going to say the word love because um, that's just an important word to me. Like we're still going to love on them, right? That unconditional positive regard um, and know that it's like going to be okay even, and we can have these like juicy, deep, uncomfortable conversations and go there. Absolutely. I, there's so much wisdom in, in what you just shared. And, and I think it builds out that idea of um, giving ourselves permission to 
know when to say no. And I think, you know, I think that's goodness knows that's one of the things that therapists can struggle with because we're born healers and born helpers. And so we're like, let me help you. <laughs> like I want everybody's yeah. gonna be happy and the world's gonna be full of daisies. Yes. And so the idea of leaning back about a certain topic or a modality or a family system or whatever it is, I think is a little difficult. It can be a hard pill to swallow, but I think there's so much freedom in that and being able to then save the space to lean in where you can have the most impact. Um, Let's talk more about this idea of niching. One of the points you made earlier that I want to comment on that I really appreciated was that idea about context and the importance of context in niching. You know, I um, certainly my experience as a mother working with children previously and now having my own kids right now, that's I'm I'm good. I don't I don't really want <laughs> kids. And and my perspective on that may change. Um, and I'm open to that. You know, but I've I've worked with um, therapists before that really like working with um, with people that have just gotten out of divorces, and then realizing as their situation changes, it's not comfortable or safe for them anymore clinically to do that. They are not getting the outcomes that they want, or they don't feel comfortable as just a human being in the room with another person on a certain topic. Um, so I want to point out, I think there is so much wisdom in what you just said, Miranda, about context. But when we're considering niching, what does that really mean? Uh, because I think that's I think that's a, a topic of confusion for people where it's like, how, what do I, what do I need to do in order to say that I am good at the thing, whatever the thing is? Yeah. 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 Like, do I need to go through and get a certification in this right, area? A certificate that, right? that may or may not be legit. I mean, that's the other part of it. Like there's so many certificate programs out there uh-huh. that someone is just like, oh, I created a seal and it's on your certificate and now it's certified. That's that's my favorite thing to tell people is like, you know, like how like certificate certifications are made and they're like, how? I'm like, they're just made up things. Like they are ultimately just made up things. So first and foremost, there is no, I, I haven't found any particular certification where you can say this is the magic bullet that will like, whatever. Some of them are better than others. Absolutely. There are some amazing certifications out there that will, that will absolutely dig in and you're doing clinical consultation and they're watching videos of your work and they're giving you live feedback and all of these things where if you go through the certification, you have a sense of like what that means for you as a therapist. But just for example, a lot of the trauma certifications, this just, okay, watch these three hours of training or read these three books and pay us $150 a year. And now you can put this on here. And it's not necessarily particularly impactful to clients is the other thing, which is really interesting. So First and foremost, you need to know internally whether you can do the work that you're doing, right? You need to know that internally. If you don't know that internally that you can do good work, um, then we need to have a conversation, right? Second, you need to have at least some experiences with clients um, that show that like here are the pieces that like I, I could do this work, right? Sometimes when you're doing a stretch goal, Maybe you've worked with clients that are like out and kind of close to this. And maybe you have some own personal experiences um, that kind of tie into this where it's like, oh, I've now spent the last four years of my life uh, working with a narcissistic spouse and going through four years of my own therapy or whatever the thing is. And like, I've read 20 books, like And now I'm at a place of healing where I feel like I could really give back to people that are maybe three or five years behind where I'm at today. And I could really do that work with them. That that could happen. But ultimately, most, most spaces, we've gotten that general knowledge, right? And it ultimately depends on the specifics of that niche, right? And it depends on the particular um, spaces. So, for example, if you're working with eating disorders, for, for, for example, eating disorders, medical issue, medical condition, you need to be connecting in. If somebody is like really restrictive in their eating, 
You need to know how to like work with a registered dietitian. You need to know where your scope of practice ends and someone else's scope of practice begins and how to work and do a team treatment approach. You need to know what works and what doesn't work in this particular area. Um, But if we're looking at, well, what does it mean to have the niche of working with somebody who has, who's an anxious mom of a teenager, right? What is the specialization or certification for that? (laughs) Right? So we need to understand how does anxiety show up? What does that look like? What is the experience of moms? What is the experience of moms of teenagers? Um, I need to have some personal experience. I need to probably, I probably worked with some clients, but it's not going to be as intensive as if I'm working with Tourette's or hair pulling or OCD, right? So it's, it's very broad. So the more that something gets into something that's like medical, the more that we get into certain pieces, you know, the, we may need to do more Mm -hmm. in terms of taking steps for our niches, but most of the niches that therapists come up with are not a huge stretch in terms of like the work that they're doing. Right. Um, trying to think of a of a good example but again like the the first niche that I had was overwork Christian moms <laughs> that was my my first niche that was not like something where I needed to have some like crazy amount of specialization right but if I'm working with clients with borderline traits that have parasuicidal behavior right and that are are people that have been hospitalized multiple times I, and I'm going to be doing some DBT skills work with them, that's a different level of training, right? I I want to just kind of reiterate one of the things you just said, which you just said one of your first niches was working with this very specific group of clients. And I, I want to highlight that because I think we get stuck being like, oh, I work with anxiety disorders, or I work with people that have substance use disorders, and that it's okay to take that one step, two steps, six steps further and say, yeah, it's actually people with anxiety disorders that are in this particular demographic that may have this socioeconomic status and have this religious focus or whatever it is. And I think we get like afraid of doing that. Um, But this important takeaway of like, it's, it's okay to get really localized and focused and that I think we would value that in a doctor. You know, like I know when I was looking at a doctor and I was looking at their profile and they said, you know, and I have a specialization specifically with this with this thing, with this population, I went, oh, thank goodness. Then you know about this, like schedule appointment. <laughs> right? Um, because it was like, okay, I don't have to explain this whole backstory to you. You understand this diagnosis. You understand some of these experiences. So I've, I don't have to do the homework with you as my provider because I already know that you're super specialized about this thing. And for me, it was a relief because it wasn't just a, a general practitioner or even you know a, a particular focus of whatever kind of medicine. It was just so, so localized to a certain diagnosis. And that one little statement on their website, it it was the first moment of rapport building for you yes. and that and that doctor. Yeah, absolutely. Right? It was a rapport building. And I think we forget about that with our websites and our marketing that our websites and marketing for many of us it's the first point of relationship building with that client and it is a place where we start to make a connection before we ever meet them right? So it's not just that, and I I know this is an uncomfortable thing because we know like a website isn't clinical, right? We're not doing therapy, but it is like this, it is this weird little intersection. It is this place. It's where they're really getting to know us. They're looking at our picture and they're trying to imagine what this feels like. And they're reading our words and they're saying like, they're, they're looking and going like, can I, am I helpable? can this person help me? When I worked the psychiatric hospital, I used to always like look through those treatment planners or the progress note planners too, right? And I'd always flip for all these different areas, right? Like, and you, and then the psych hospital, right? You get everything. And the first like goal or objective or whatever for every like treatment was installation of hope. And I always thought it was so funny, like, okay, I'm supposed to like install hope in people? Like, what does that mean? 
And when I finally really got into like doing private practice and, and writing up a website, I finally started to understand what that meant, right? Somebody is at two in the morning or whenever, and they're feeling like overwhelmed and unsure and like, is anything, what are my options? I don't know what to do next. And then suddenly they see something and they read something and they go, oh, that's like, that's what I've been going through. And I, and I feel like this person really gets me. I'm not alone. It's on a website, which means it can't just be me. Right. And they've shown me how they can help me. And then they told me what the next step is. And like, I'm going to call this person. I'm going to take an action towards my own health and healing. Right. This is what good marketing does for a therapist. It has like, I don't care if it builds your practice. It makes a client feel like they can get help and it moves them forward on their treatment journey. Like it's freaking magical, guys. It is really, like, it, as you're talking about it, you're absolutely right. You are absolutely right. And I'm thinking about my own experience where it was like seeing seeing that there was a specialist that knew about this thing. It was just like, uh, just seeing it was a relief where it's like, okay, like I, I've, I've been doing the reading. I've been doing the research. I've been trying to find the right providers. And it's like, oh, thank goodness. And just a sense of relief and how much we want to offer that to our clients. And so it's it's okay to get very specific. We don't have to be Renaissance people and be everything to everyone and and try to, I mean, I see it on psychology today listings or or other, you know, other uh, therapist resource sites where it's like I specialize in and it's like everything has been checked. And it's like, no, it's when okay. You speak it's to okay. everyone, you speak to no one. Yeah. If you're trying to speak to everyone, you speak to no one. It's like the idea that I tell people is if somebody was sitting in front of you, you would talk to them about their particular situation and how you could help them. You wouldn't go and say, well, you know, somebody says, well, what do you do? Well, I help this and this and this and this and this and this and blah, 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 blah. You're going to tailor the conversation to who's sitting in front of you. So even if you know you're an anxiety specialist or you are a trauma specialist and, you know, your favorite clients are A, B, and C, they're like different, like kind of offshoots of the same thing, but they're in that same wheelhouse. To put three different marketing messages on your website that are specific to those three, like, I don't want to say buckets of clients, but those three like kind of avatars or what have you of clients, again, where somebody can just click and say like dating anxiety. Oh gosh. <laughs> you know, like what does that feel like? What 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 is the the piece? You know, a mom of a nonverbal preschooler, you know, what how how do I go through that? What is that what does that look like? It's a whole it's a whole process. And it's so it's just so powerful. I just want to go back to that. Like what you do is so powerful. And I know that it's scary to choose a niche. Know that, again, I said my first niche. And what was funny was my first client was somebody who said, actually, I think I want to come see you because you would really understand my wife and what she's going through. But my issues are completely different. But like I'm pissing my wife off and she's ready to divorce me. And I feel like this would be a good fit. So you'll still attract people that are outside of your niche. I shouldn't mm -hmm. have taken that client now looking back. <laughs> I had no expertise. I didn't know what I didn't know at that time um, when I first started in private practice. But regardless, um, I learned from that experience. I now know. But you get to have this wonderful experience of shifting and changing and tweaking over time to adjust it. It's not something that you're married to that you have to like like this is it, you've got it tattooed on your skin and nothing else can ever happen. You can you can make adjustments as you go forward, but start somewhere and start in a place where a real person could read that and, and feel better and get movement and get treatment. I, I love this. I mean, I think it's very encouraging and focusing and calming to hear that we're on the right track when we're doing that and we keep just working that material and refining it and focusing in. Miranda, like I've said, I could totally nerd out and we could just keep talking for hours on this. It's just, just roll. Um, for people <laughs> who want to know more about you and about your work, um, the services that you provide, how can they get in touch with you? Uh, go to zinnyme.com, <laughs> which I know is a weird thing. Z-Y-N-N-Y 
M as in Mary, M-E.com, ZenyMe.com. Um, we have actually like a, a, a whole training, like a four hour training on this particular topic that's free. And that even includes some more CEs. So if you want some more CEs, um, come over and check it out. You can find it on our, on our homepage and we would just love to help you. We have actually over 10 hours of free training, um, on, uh, all things private practice, some of it CE, some of it not, but, um, we'd love to help you. Ultimately, we know that what we do in our business impacts um, our clinical outcomes. And we really want to like help support you in that. This has been such a helpful and energizing hour. Thank you, Miranda. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me and letting me have this wonderful, juicy conversation with you. This was really, really fun. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.